That one driven deep right field. Thank you, go. Gone for Morgan Chris. And Fitz Chamberlain. That ball. Going to the wall. Chamberlain the second for this first hit. Mounted second, going to third. For this first hit of the season. So, and the pitch. That one swung deep to left. And that one's gone! Savvy Seaman with a three-run shot. And the Warhawks take the lead. Hello and welcome to another episode of Podcast on D-Shot. Um, where you you hear me fine? Yeah, yeah, you bet. Okay. All right. Um, so yeah, Chris Heimerman in um, for this this show. Um, talk about sports journalism. Um, but we'll kind of get started with the interesting thing is, um, I guess your um alcohol addiction recovery and like mental health you just kind of go into um your story a little bit and like what what it entails sure absolutely um well sort of the present is that uh, i'm a stay-at-home dad i'm a full-time freelancer which gave me the opportunity to launch my my podcast my live stream show and to write a memoir as well which is super fun but in terms of the story um, I grew up in northeastern Wisconsin, went to school in Milwaukee, which um, not that I'm trying to like shed any of the blame, but it's kind of a breeding ground for, for drinking and alcoholism, obviously. Um, but it was first about five, 10 years ago that things started to get out of control where um, my drinking was uh, excessive. I began drinking my way through the workday, which is common knowledge and that I've put out there. And the, uh, you know, the grind of the daily newspaper grind really kind of chewed me up eventually. So it was about two years ago now. Matter of fact, in three days, it'll be the anniversary of me checking into treatment in Aurora at Gateway Foundation, where I was uh, for rehab and then popped out on the other side. Here, here's something I had mentioned the day after I got out of treatment, I ran a marathon. <laughs> which is why the memoir that I started writing that afternoon after the race is called 40,000 Steps. And my sober date, because I had a brief relapse shortly thereafter, but my sober date now is May 21st. And yeah, that's, that's pretty much, uh, you know, what the advocacy is all about is kind of cutting through the stigma surrounding mental illness, addiction, and really advancing the conversation and creating a space where we can talk about these things. Um, one of the things you were um, talking about before um, we started talking for this podcast was kind of you just kind of wrote some things on how sports journalism has changed during the pandemic. Um, I'd say probably one of the big ones is kind of what we're doing right now, which is uh, Zoom. Um, just kind of talk about talk about um, that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've chatted with a number of editors and reporters around Illinois because I'm in DeKalb, Illinois. Um, my heart will always be in Milwaukee, of course. Um, but chatting with like the sports editor from the Champaign News Gazette and folks at the Southern, these newspapers that would typically send reporters to cover um, Arch Madness in St. Louis, the Big Ten tournament in Indianapolis. And it really created a conundrum for them when they quickly found out that all the fanfare you usually have with the tournaments, that, that stuff that we love, fans in the building, interacting with coaches in the tunnel, post-game press conferences that 
all that stuff, you know, doesn't exist now. Matter of fact, there was a guy from the Southern, um, Todd Hefferman, who was really bummed because there was a senior from SIU Carbondale from the Salukis who he wasn't able to interview after the game because the SID said, here are the three guys who we're going to trot out for the press conference. So no, you can't talk to this guy who um, will never play again in a, in a Salukis uniform. So he kind of came away from it where usually he would have stuck around for the entire tournament, even after SIU lost, but he just went home because all of that excitement and all those unique elements were missing. So now that you have these press conferences available on Zoom, <laughs> you have the question of why are we sending people if they can watch the game, do the press conferences the same, you know, in their underpants in their living room, rather than <laughs> actually, you know, being at the game, that it's all the same experience. So um, it's been a unique decision-making process. Then you factor in that, like in Champaign, they're chasing the best University of Illinois teams since 15 years ago, you know, the D Brown, James Augustine days. They're going to be playing at noon tomorrow. And then tomorrow night prep football kicks off. It's like, <laughs> it's complete insanity. Um, so the juggling of how to cover both at once, how to use your resources, when I think all of us know that newspapers resources are, are more bare bones than ever before. It's a really interesting conversation. And the, I got to do this coverage for uh, the Illinois Press Association. So if anybody's interested in like hearing these guys' perspective, you can go to illinoispress.org and it's like three of the top four stories on the page that you can kind of read about how, how pants on head crazy these times are right now for, for sports writers. I guess what's the biggest difference between covering Illinois high school sports and maybe Wisconsin high school sports? Um, you know, when you look in the, in the crowds here in Illinois, I think that they're a little bit leaner. I think the COVID protocols are probably a little bit tighter and perhaps more strictly enforced, but it's, it's pockets all over the place. You know, some places are really are following the protocols to the letter. Some places are seeing what they can get away with. Like there's a Juco college down by Carbondale where like they've completely like thrown protocols out the window. You know, players are sitting shoulder to shoulder. People are, you know, uh, clustering together in the crowd. Um, so, I mean, I think we've discovered over the past year or so that there are very different mindsets when you go from state to state. Uh, I think that the WIA uh, was a little bit more aggressive in resuming play. And I think conferences were more aggressive in resuming play compared to Illinois. Um, so I think that here, there weren't quite as many opportunities to go out and cover games here in Illinois. And that's tough because like sports editors, you know, you have the same pressure as conferences do where parents and, and boosters, like they want you going out and covering the games. They want games happening. So there is that balance of, of doing the job the right way. Um, and one of the big sticking points right now is that you would think that with people being unable to attend games that the gamers would be so much more read, like actual game stories. Mm. But a lot of these guys are still finding out that the traffic on those stories isn't, hasn't really gone up that you could spend three hours covering a game, get a thousand page views, but you can spend 45 minutes putting together a top 10 list of the top players in the area 
and get 10,000 page views. So it's really, okay, how do we spend our resources wisely? And that brings in like the romantic conundrum, you know, the, the sentimental aspect of, you know, you want to be covering these players when, like here in Illinois, and I have to be honest, I'm not sure what the case is in Wisconsin, there's no state tournament for hoops here. There's no state championship for football. So it's really a whole different animal when like these conference games for these players, this is it. So, you know, if I'm that player, I, you know, I want my coverage, you know, I want to get my name in the paper when I rush for 150 yards and a couple of touchdowns. So it's the, the, the whole situation. I mean, I know it, I'm kind of beating a dead horse, but it's just weird. I also kind of just met in general, um, not cold, not just because of COVID. Like, how different is it? You, you mean, I, I'm sorry, how is, how is it different, like, apart from COVID? Um, yeah, like, what's, what are the similarities between covering, like, a Wisconsin high school sports and, to Illinois, or, and differences compared to Illinois, not, not just within this COVID thing? Oh, okay, so in the That's, grand scheme of things. Yeah. You know, it, it's funny because I never really thought about it because it is, it is really similar because, I mean, when you're covering prep sports, as long as the IHSA and WIA, these governing bodies, as long as they stay out of the way and don't overcomplicate things, the game is the same wherever you play it. Sure, I mean, the talent levels might be a little bit different, but, you know, classification systems, you know, divisions in Wisconsin and classes in, in Illinois when they're done right, they level the playing field. So whether I was chasing the Monroe Cheesemakers circa 2007, when the boys and girls hoops programs had their state title runs, whether it was that, or if it was chasing Newman football here in Illinois on their state championship runs, I mean, it was really similar. Um, and no matter where you're doing it, you do the job the same, you know, you, you let the players stories tell the stories and you kind of the same way with the governing bodies, you kind of just try to stay out of the way. You know what I mean? Don't mm. overcomplicate things. <laughs> um, I, I see you were kind of talking about, uh, Illinois basketball. I feel really tempted because I'm a John Philip Susan nut to throw in the university of Illinois March that Sousa wrote, but that's not out of uh, public domain yet. There'll be a couple of years until that's out of public domain. Um, just um, what's kind of the feeling in Illinois about them and where do you think their chances are in March madness or what's your, what's your personal bracket looking like? <laughs> I've got Illinois winning it all. I'm just going to put that out there right away. And I had Illinois winning it all the first time that I saw them play Wisconsin. Like I'm a UWM alumnus. I watched them in the Horizon League. I watched them rally and then sort of wither against Cleveland State. But I spent as much time in Madison as I did in Milwaukee during college. So I'm a huge Bucky fan. And the first time that I saw um, Coburn and AO, it was like, they have something genuinely special um, in Champaign-Urbana. And then you look at the supporting cast. It's just, they are deep and they've got the star power of those two guys. Um, I think a lot of it is gonna hinge on how their little point guard, uh, Curbelo, I should say little, but um, how he plays when he comes off the bench and has to spell AO. Um, it's a very, very exciting time 
uh, <laughs> like maybe not for me personally as a Bucky fan, but it's fun to be around that electricity, especially when you take into account how mediocre to bad Illinois has been for the past 15 years. Um, so I have them, I have them winning it all in, in my bracket, but I have, you know, I, I went with a lot of chalk this year. Um, you know, I have them beating Gonzaga, which is, you know, kind of the most boring, <laughs> most mm. predictable bracket of all time. Um, but like down in Champaign at the News Gazette, you know, the newspaper uh, that covers them, uh, Matt Daniels, their sports editor, like he justified sending, uh, sending his guy, Scott Ritchie, to the Big Ten tournament and to Indianapolis. Well, first of all, he can justify it because like Illinois has the huge advantage that they're like playing in their backyard at Lucas Oil. Like it's two hours away. Like they could play the game, sleep in their own beds. They could drive back and forth if they wanted to. They're going to have a huge uh, advantage in that way. Um, but he said, you know, he's sending Scott to the games because any little extra amount of value and sort of texture and color that he can work into the coverage is huge because that University of Illinois coverage for the News Gazette is a big piece of what makes that paper go. Um, so I know that there's a ton of energy surrounding you know, the News Gazette's readership right now and deservedly so. That, that, that Illinois team is scary. I thought they were scary a month, month and a half ago. And I, I just, even more so now, I think Gonzaga would be the only other team to beat, the only other team that's in that same class. I felt, I felt like with my bracket, I kind of had to lean towards some kind of whitewater-ish connections because um, Tony Bennett is at Virginia. And um, I know Tony's cousin, Nick, who coaches at St. Cats and Racine, but was mm -hmm. on Pat, Pat Miller's staff for the, uh, 2014 national title that Cordell Young took took the coast to coast layup uh, after the Duncan Robinson miss. But then uh, Nate Oates is who used to be at used to be Pat Miller, one of other Pat Miller's other assistants um, in Pat's early early tenure at Whitewater. Um, it was um, at Buffalo for a little bit and now is at Alabama. So I felt like I had to kind of somehow lean towards them because you feel like you kind of got to lead towards your whitewater-ish connections there. And, you know, I just want to <laughs> say that one of my favorite phrases that you used before is Duncan Robinson miss. That's just music to my ears. I love the idea of Duncan Robinson missing. That's, that's glorious. That was when he was a freshman at yeah. one and then we, we beat him. So we can like say, oh, we beat you in the national in the national title game. But then, of course, you know, you don't really know who got the better. I mean, Whitewater got to hold the walnut and bronze right there. Um, yeah. But then he's in the NBA and he's one of the best three point shooters. Um, I guess uh, you've kind of moved around a little bit. Just kind of talk about how, how hard it is to kind of move around, especially in a journalism career. Oh, without a doubt. Um, you know, I got my start in Monroe, uh, covering prep sports at the Monroe Times, which was great. Ironically, that's a job that I've, I've just applied for or a little bit. Oh, really? Oh, that's yeah. cool. Monroe's a, a, Monroe's a cool little town. Emphasis on little. Um, <laughs> the nice thing is you're close to Madison, so you can get away and you know, get into the city a little bit. Um, but, they, you know, they take a lot of pride in their prep sports. So good luck. 
Um, I hope you get it. The, uh, and then from there, I worked at the Press Gazette for a minute. And, you know, that was one of the places where I got my first brush with how hard the journalism game is now, especially in newspapers, was I was at the Press Gazette for about a year. And I was, I was one of a number of people who was laid off. And it was jarring. It was like, okay, the, everything that we've been told about print and how hard this is, is kind of coming home to roost. So I saw the opportunity to change things up and chase something that I always wanted to try. And I went into hockey broadcasting. I worked a season as a broadcasting intern for the uh, Rockford Ice Hogs nearby here. And then use that as a springboard to be the broadcaster and communications director for the Muskegon Lumberjacks in Western Michigan for a year. And that was wild because Muskegon had just gone from being semi-pro hockey to being juniors hockey. So you went from having all these fans who had gotten used to being able to watch the game and then go drink with the players across the street at rackets. Like, mm. <laughs> like they were so embedded with that team. All of a sudden you got these 16 to 21 year old kids. So there was a lot of pushback against this. So a lot of my job was doing PR and trying to convince people that the product is better. It's better hockey even though you, you know, even though you can't hang out with these guys and they're not, they're not your buddies. Um, I did that for a year. My wife, Kayla and I, we wanted to have a family. So I couldn't, I didn't want to be on the road for four five, six days at a time on a, you know, on a team bus anymore. You know, I didn't, I didn't want to do the dad thing that way. So I took a job in Sterling, Illinois as assistant news editor, did that for a couple of years. We had our two girls, Anna and Elise. We've got twins who are now seven. And when that happened, I couldn't be doing the, the 2 a.m. Uh, end of shift stuff anymore. So I got into news, became a copy editor on the news side, then night news editor, then uh, all the way up to coming out here to Calvin, being the editor of the Daily Chronicle. Did that for a couple of years. And yeah, it, you know, you're always kind of, the tendency in journalism is that you're always looking to get a promotion. You know, you're always looking for the next gig, you know, the next rung on the ladder. And that kind of, uh, that kind of bit me in the butt because I wanted a bigger salary for my family. I wanted, I mean, let, let's be honest, you know, I wanted a higher profile job. So I basically allowed myself to be like promoted out of my strength, which was reporting. So all of a sudden I'm working 60, 70 hours a week trying to manage the Chronicle um, with one reporter while I covered crime and courts. And it just, it just wore me out. And that was a big reason why, why I ended up having the problems that I did with mental illness and that, you know, the alcoholism. Uh, the beauty now is that I'm a freelancer. I write for the Illinois Press Association. I write for Gateway Journalism Review, which covers media practices in the Midwest. I also freelance for a healthcare system in Texas because all of a sudden these sort of things can happen because we've embraced working remotely. And then of course, you know, we've for about three months now, we've had the, uh, the podcast and live stream show. And um, yeah, it's, it's wild that I kind of get to have my cake and eat it too. Cause I get to keep writing about journalism, but I don't have to be putting out a newspaper every day. So I'm kind of spoiled rotten that way. Um. I guess we can both kind of speak from experience um, on obviously how 
hard it is to on either side, obviously, because um, I've been on the radio side and place where I th- I was at early in my c- career. I didn't feel like I was appreciated at. I wanted to kind of stay there a, a, a little bit because there's a potential role there that I would have wanted if, if the guy would once the guy would have retired. Um, but just kind of which which to you is kind of um, tougher to kind of um, go through go through a little bit because obviously radio is kind of a tough thing to crack every once in a while and sometimes stay in and then prints kind of um, I'm not I don't know if it's really the same thing but what what's your kind of view on that? Well. The situation with Prince has been a long time coming. Um, And a lot of people want to chalk up the print industry's struggles to technology, which is a huge part of it. Obviously, the shift to the digital realm, people finding ways to navigate around paywalls, the struggle to monetize digital advertising, those are all big factors. But there are other factors in that a lot of publishers have been trying to do it the same way they've always done it. Um, And for many years, a lot of these big groups like Gatehouse, Gannett, Lee, they've all relied so heavily on national advertisers that now those national advertisers, the moment that they don't see their return on investment, they're bailing. And so print is up against it. I've also had a couple of folks tell me that broadcast isn't far behind and that they're going to have to be rethinking their business model as well. So no matter what realm of media you're in, if you're not flexible and if you're not willing to adapt and change the way that you're doing it, you're shooting yourself in the foot. Um, In terms of doing the job at this moment, I think radio and TV have got to be easier because because the staffs haven't been cut to the bone just yet. Um, But yeah, in in terms of print, one of the things that a lot of these places are trying to do is they're trying to cut their way to prosperity. You know, they're cutting staff. Whereas places that are getting it right, are finding ways to to cut other costs. Um, Something that gets a really bad rap is when you see like a whole bunch of weekly newspapers merging, Mm. everybody everybody points to that and they say, oh, wow, they're struggling. They're they're closing up all these newspapers. And a lot of publishers will tell you that these are decisions that should have been made 10 years ago, that that business model was not feasible. I don't know about you, but I would personally rather continue to get my newspaper if it was combined with like five other communities newspapers rather than have no newspaper at all. And so I think that a lot of you know publishers have been lying to themselves in terms of like clinging to having a weekly newspaper in each one of these markets, which is overkill and it's just, it's a cost nightmare. Um, so personally, I can't speak a whole lot to the, to the radio and television aspect. I just know that in print, a lot of these struggles could have been avoidable. And rather than just saying, print's dead, um, there's, there's no salvaging it. 
there are a lot of people out there who are doing smart things. Um, one thing that I've noticed in the past year in Illinois is that like whenever I worked at a newspaper, you could have put editorial and advertising in two different buildings and nobody would have known any difference. They, they were just on different planets. Now, COVID-19 kind of forced this in that all of a sudden, some people woke up and they're like, well, wait a second, that's right. The community is most important in keeping them informed. So you had advertising and editorial coming together on projects, special sections, restaurant guides, contests, thinking outside the box so that they could actually like work together and let the paper survive. So, you know, a lot of people hate to talk about silver linings with the pandemic, but what it did was it did shake some people up and sort of tear down that brick wall between editorial and advertising so that we start working smarter, not harder. So um, print is not dead is, is the grand takeaway. But if, if, if groups, publishers, companies don't acknowledge what's going on, they will be dead. Okay. Um, that's why we both done news. Um, kind of just how, obviously I've dealt with this the last newspaper job I had, but like, how, how do you kind of get it around? Let's say you have a readership um, that like, um, and your papers are owned by like a, a, like, I don't know, Lee, for instance, and you have people just like complain about, oh, you're so left-wing diatribe or you're non-liberal or that sort of thing. How do you want to get, get, this is kind of for my benefit. I, I struggled with kind of getting in touch with some people that on my last job to kind of be able to get some sources and whatnot how do you kind of work your way around uh dealing with people who maybe have a set political bias that maybe you don't want to talk to you because you, they think that the paper you work for is um has has that when they're really not oh but we are the liberal media aren't we i'm, I'm totally joking um <laughs> The thing about it is, you know, talk to virtually any publisher and they've got a story about how they'll publish an editorial and they'll get two emails the same day, sometimes within minutes of a reader who is accusing them of being too liberal and somebody who is accusing them of being too conservative because these readers cherry picked <laughs> the little things that they disagreed with and made the decision that there's a political leaning. Um, how do you work around that? I think a big thing that we do is we pull back the curtain as the media. Um, you know, we can't be perceived as that we're working in some ivory tower and coming down to hand people the news. Um, so in terms of taking advantage of technology by doing videos, showing people that we're out covering the community, showing people our decision-making process, Showing people that we as journalists, if you prick us, we bleed, man. We're human just like everybody else. You know, we live in these communities and any paper worth its salt is hyper-local emphasis. So yeah, they're there. They're the, uh, they're the paper of record that knows the community as well as anybody else. Um, speaking of covering that community, you have to, um, you have to cover the community holistically. If you're a newspaper that simply parachutes into a community to cover whenever there's crime or something that goes wrong, yeah, th that community isn't going to trust you. 
Um, and now that, you know, we circle back to the struggle is you don't have the staff to do it, right? To cover a community holistically. But there are, there are programs out there like Report for America that are placing journalists with newspapers in underserved communities. But that's a whole other conversation. Um, that's kind of like that patch thing, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. So you need to write the feature stories. You need to ask the community for input. You need to not have the knee-jerk response that you're going to cover a community when a press release comes in or when something comes through uh, in the blotter or you hear something on the scanner. You need to be out there in that community and, and be visible, which I know right now is difficult, um, but so that they know that the newspaper is part of that community, not just an entity that reports on that community. Okay. Um, yes, we both covered sports. So like what in, um, so you could say news too, but like what's the most, um, interesting um story that you've ever had to cover and or um that sort of thing i mean i've covered a lot of fun gamers those are great um the project that i was most proud of and it was it was wild i i did a, a series on sports concussions this was 10 years ago now it's wild to think about and it did well it won a uh Associated Press Sports Editors Award, which is incredibly, I don't know, that, that's, that's the one that I'll put on the mantle because this was when people were really coming around and hearing about CTE and the long-term effects of what was happening with, with young athletes' brains and how that was translating when they got older. Um, so I think that that was a five installment series where we did a main bar, a sidebar, and a column with each installment. And it was a beast. And we talked to um, youth football coaches. We talked to kids who had dealt with concussions. We talked to athletic trainers. And it really. Did you talk to any NFL people or not really? No, this was really hyper local. Okay. So, th so this was local sports programs. Um, you know, we held one school district's feet to the fire when they basically said that there's no concerns about concussions, that nobody ever brings it up. <laughs> so, so we, we held their feet to the fire and called out a lot of hypocrisy there. Um, and they ended up hiring an athletic trainer. There were some of these outlying schools in the boonies that started contracting athletic trainers and medical personnel. So this is my favorite part of journalism is solutions-based journalism. When a piece of journalism becomes an agent of change where reporting on this stuff led to action and as a result, ended up making the games safer for kids to play. Um, I still look back on that very proudly. I still cry when I think about some of the kids I talked to. There was a kid who played for Sterling, Ryan Hermes, who had suffered, he didn't, he couldn't count the number of concussions that he had suffered during his high school football playing career. He was a middle linebacker. He would, he would forget how to tie his shoes. He would break down and cry without being prompted. I mean, this kid's brain was battered at age 17. And I haven't checked in with him in a while. This is probably a subtle reminder for me to call Ryan and see how he's doing. But the uh, 
you know, the, the title of the series was The Hidden Injury because, like, you can't see it and because nobody wanted to talk about it. Um, but we found people who were willing to talk about it. Um, and we, we published the bejesus out of it, man, and it was, it was pretty neat. I can relate to that because when I was in at Whitewater, I did like uh, concussions in sports for my, my like required like media or writing my writing requirement or whatever. And then I tried doing a video on it. And then you're just like, I had Leroy Butler and Gary Ellerson from WSSP who were former NFL players um, in mind for, for video interviews and whatnot. And then they, they're, they were part of the NFL lawsuit so then I ended up finding Jake, asking Jake Kumaro's dad, who played a little bit in the NFL, and Jake was kind of in his last year at Whitewater. It's like, yo, would you be willing to talk um, about concussions? And that was kind of a little neat substitute. Man, see, you big league me. You're talking to Leroy Butler, or Leroy Butler, I should say. And you've got some good guests on this show too, man. How, how are you doing that? Uh, I mean, I know Lance Leipold pretty well from his time at Whitewater and I, some, some of it's Ramchek helping me out. Um, I know Pat Miller really well from like, like, I know a lot of good, have a good, a lot of good Whitewater connections. So. It's awesome, man. You're, you're doing an awesome job. And I, I really enjoyed watching the show so far. So I know you and I are both, you know, young in our podcasting careers, but I think we're both off to an all right start. So keep it up. Thanks. Um, I would say like my favorite one is um, I covered the Tony Romo camp in Burlington for Ramchak one year and um, did the press conference thing. Um, I, we did like a camp story and I was, we were trying to find another story and there was a small video production crew um, from Texas. It wasn't your NFL films type thing. Um, it was this, somebody trying to do a documentary on Romo and no one really caught wind of that. And I just decided to interview the people who were doing this and it got on a Cowboys block and they spelt my, my first name uh, as D A B N I E L. And I was like, are you kidding me? Of of all things, are you just, you're going to screw up my uh, first name and not my last name. But like yeah, that was kind of neat to kind of get on that Cowboys Cowboys blog. Yeah, and now, now it's a great story, right? At the time, yeah. I'm sure you're upset. Now it's funny. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I do have like a weird story about um, kind of like a, I was covering a volleyball match at Palmar Eagle, and um, this coach um, was just like, oh, we have a distraction within our program. Not saying what it is, mm-hmm. not giving you any idea what it is. I, why, why would you say that then? <laughs> and it's like the next thing, next, like, so I'm like in this post game thing with her thinking, okay, should I even ask this? Cause I don't know where I'm going to get and, and whatnot. Wake up a couple days later from, to a text at eight in the morning from the coach saying, oh, uh, this is so-and-so, um, I'm no longer a coach at school due to, parent bullying over playing time but then it turned out it was like all these players on her team didn't want to play for her because she yelled so much wow that's something did they did they lose the night that she brought up the distraction yeah so that was that was kind of the 
the this is why we lost tonight. There's a distraction. <laughs> yeah, it's so random. I was just like, what the? Yeah. yeah. Wow, that's pretty wild. Yeah, you, you just never know what you're going to run into. One of my first uh, experiences as a sports journalist, like my first scoop, I was working for Art Kabalowski, who was the preps editor at the Journal Sentinel for so long. And he, he always he always throws my uh, I tried playing for that like a couple times. Yeah. And like the first one of the first times he calls me back. He, he's like looking at my like, I think it was either my resume or something. And he thought it had AP style issues. And I was just like, I worked on that with somebody from the Center of Student Disabilities at Whitewater. And it was like, yeah. Art, art's a different egg. Um, but he, uh, so he sends me out to a conference or a, a sectional final, I believe it was, uh, between Brookfield schools. And, you know, I, I found out, like, I noticed that the goalkeeper, like the all-conference goalkeeper wasn't playing. And so I'm, like, nosing around in the crowd, like, talking to parents and trying to find out where she was. It turned out that she was she was suspended because she was academically in, ineligible. So, you know, this is back in the day of, like, flip cell phones. And I'm calling Art and trying to, you know, get a report out there. And this was back in 2002. So I remember just like zipping back to the office and writing the game story and writing the sidebar on the suspended player. And <laughs> that was kind of the first taste of it, you know, that, that adrenaline rush that got me into it. Did you, uh, did you have something like that ever happen to you where it was like, okay, yeah, th this, this is cool. I, I like that adrenaline rush. Mm, I mean, the, the neat thing was um, covering like a small community like Whitewater or Palmar Eagle for high school sports mm -hmm. and just being like, okay, the first year I, I kind of jumped needed. I was like, you know what? I'm part-time at this radio station. This dude left for um, Florida with his girlfriend. He was covering those two communities for Southern Lakes. And I was like, you know, what? I'm just going to see if I can cover it a little bit since he's going to Florida. And the first year I'd go into these games and be like, I'm just the reporter for the newspaper cover the game, interview the coach, um, get back, get, get back on, get back to my apartment. The next, then I was like, I'm going to get more people in these stories and like more people. Then all of a sudden it's like, I'm at Deerfield and Palmer Eagles, like uh varsity team. I guess I added a couple of them on social media and they're just like, Oh, look, it's D shot. And I'm just like, okay, how the heck did they find this out? And it's like, all of a sudden you, you're like, people knew who more who I was and it's like then people would be like you'd write something and you have people come up and say nice work on this or whatnot that was like the best thing yeah that's the rewards when people when you know people are reading it and enjoying it because they'll let you know when they're not enjoying it we kind of just have to have to get through that <laughs> makes me it makes me hope my next job is better than my last job because I was like Lake, Lake Geneva was just not that readership issue was just awful. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, bear in mind that when you're interviewing for jobs, they're, they're interviewing for you too. You know what I'm saying? Mm. So I don't, you know, don't take a gig that, that isn't going to treat you well. I can speak from personal experience. I'm trying to think of what other, um, what's like your favorite news event that you've ever had to cover? Because like I had to cover that my, in Lake Geneva, the coolest thing to cover was ice castles. I, uh, I mean, I covered crime and courts uh, here in DeKalb. So I covered 
the, I mean, this is, this is going to take a dark turn, but I mean, I covered murder trials. Um, I covered, you know, shaken baby cases and stuff like that. So a lot of that was a lot of that. There was a, a lot of intensity around that. And it was a learning experience and being able to not just cover what was going on in the courtroom, but occasionally talk to the families about the trauma that they had endured and bringing light to that, that was special. And I guess that kind of leads me to, you know, something I wanted to get, get out there in this, in this podcast is that um, whether we're talking about, you know, toxic masculinity, addiction, mental illness, all these things that are like holding us back as a society, like that's the whole purpose of what I'm doing right now is, is shedding light on that stuff. Because if, if, if we don't point it out and if we don't have the conversations, it's like we are not going to advance as a society. Um, so yeah, when, when it came to covering like domestic abuse situations, the easy thing to do would be to go to the courthouse, read the court records, report the story, the, the, the gory details, chase the page clicks, and then you've, you've, you've monetized the job enough for your newspaper. Um, to me, what was cool was going the extra step and talking to advocates, talking to the people at the local women's abuse shelter um, in order to not just report on what was going on, but the context of things. So, so that, that was very meaningful for me. The other thing I would mention that I covered that was really cool, I kind of did the same thing in Sterling at Sauk Valley Media compared to what I did with that concussion series, was we did a huge series of stories on the origins of the Hispanic community in the Sauk Valley, basically dating back to the 1950s when you had this huge migration of people from like the Rio Grande Valley. These folks came to work at the local steel mill. Their wages tripled there. But it came, what came with the territory was there wasn't housing for these folks. So the steel mill provided old train boxcars, steel boxcars for these folks to, to, to live in. So you've got dozens and dozens of workers at the steel mill that that, that was their home, that was their community. You know, they called it Steel City. So you know, I was interviewing people who were you know, second generation from the folks who lived in those boxcars, but I also managed to find some people who grew up in them and that that was their life. That was their upbringing. That was way, where they raised their children. And that was really, really heavy and meaningful and inspiring to write that. Uh, that, that's, that series was called Silver Linings. Pretty low hanging fruit on that series title. But that was cool because again, it's like, you know, you're not, you know, being able to tell the history of a community in a rich culture is that again let's that's that's how we engender trust with our readers is by covering a community holistically um not just reporting on what comes across our desk when somebody thinks that it's important oh you're talking about like crime and court report things um what's the most um humorous or like you'd read it and be like this is this is funny because there's one that I did, one like um i don't know if it's criminal complaint thing that i had the right in lake geneva where there was a motorcyclist and it was uh what do you call the car that like has the thing that um like you can the top comes off 
convertible yeah convertible and it was a motorcyclist that collided with the convert the convertible but the funniest thing about it was that the motor the dude on the motorcycle landed in the back seat of the convertible <laughs> just like what it's awesome yeah the sheer <laughs> physics of that are awesome um you know, I mean, I, I got to cover wild turkeys, cows stuck in the road. That kind of comes to the, the territory of covering things in the Midwest. Um, but yeah, you know, it's really dark that like we, like at the Green Bay Press Gazette and places where we worked, like everyone was always quick to point out like the news brief about, you know, the guy who, who got so upset after the Packers lost that he did something ridiculous. But the most hilarious one, and there's layers of how hilarious this is. There was a, a guy who was harassing his ex-wife by showing up every night in her backyard naked. <laughs> and in hindsight, like it's kind of insensitive of me to find that funny because it is like the stalker situation is terrifying. But, you know, this guy keeps showing up naked in her backyard and you've got, you know, neighbors as witnesses and stuff. And, you know, I reported on it because, you know, it's news of the weird. And this was when I was still living in Sterling with my family and commuting to DeKalb. And I got an email over the weekend of a family member of, of this couple. And they're just irate with me, of course, because, you know, pointing out uh, this embarrassing detail of what's going on with their family. They're saying he wasn't naked. He was, you know, he was fully clothed, et cetera. So it's a Saturday and I'm like panicked out of my mind. I'm like, oh my God, are we going to get sued? You know, was this, was this not correct in the police report? Did I read it wrong? So I waste my entire weekend worried sick about this. I get in Monday morning, go straight to the courthouse, read the court records and find out that yes, in the police reports, it was reported that this guy was repeatedly showing up in her backyard naked. So first off, I'm like, whew. All right, I'm not going to lose my job. I'm not going to be a disgraced journalist. We're not going to get sued. But, you know, and I had to I had to reach out to these folks and I had to tell them that this is funny to a lot of people, but to a lot of women who have been abused, abused and stalked and threatened, this is serious too. Like we have to report on this stuff because people have to realize there has to be accountability when people stalk their exes. So, hilarious in ways poignant in ways but certainly that's one of the most notable stories that i've had the uh pleasure or displeasure of writing um you were talking about the kelp so i just want what's your what's your thoughts on maction on maction the the mac conference yeah um in what regards uh i have no idea where i'm going with this i was just saying that's cool I mean, I know, I know, I know Leipold's in the Mac, so. I, it's really a bummer that they, that they got into bed with broadcasters and decided to put all their football games on, on weeknights. I really think that they kind of shot themselves in the foot by doing that. Um, and, you know, they, 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 they chased the money and I think it's kind of blown up in their face a little bit. Um, I think that you know, Northern Illinois University, it's funny how when I lived in Sterling, it was like NIU was Orange Bowl, you know, kicking butt and taking names. And, you know, their athletic department is definitely, uh, has, has hit a very, you know, down note of late, um, which is kind of a bummer because this city goes as NIU, 
Northern Illinois University goes. So when enrollment is down, you know, businesses shutter, you know, the, the uh, tax revenue goes down. So, I mean, I have to admit that it's like, there's only so much time in this life. So I haven't really paid like a ton of close attention to the university's athletic program that's like right in my backyard. Like we'll, we'll take girl, we'll take the girls to go and see hoops games and football games and stuff like that. But, you know, in your average season, I, I couldn't like tell you who the team to beat is in men's and women's hoops and in college football. Um, I guess I spend my resources more on watching, you know, the big 10 because yeah. <laughs> that's where my heart is. Like there will always be a certain amount of that, uh, my heart is still in Wisconsin and I'm just, I'm just living here. Okay. I, I'm probably like, yeah, I probably don't really pay attention to like what the Badgers are doing as much. Maybe I'm paying attention more to Whitewater because it's my alma mater or yeah. I'm like Leipold's at Buffalo. So I try to keep tabs on what Lance is doing and hopefully he gets, uh, so, uh, hopefully he gets another, um, maybe a power five at some point which would be cool but i'm kind of hoping he's still around in uh at buffalo in 2023 when they play wisconsin you know i i find that i watch badger basketball and first off they have been so massively disappointing this year that they've had all these guys who are who've been in the program like four or five but what feels like seven or eight years and they haven't developed but I find myself, I'll watch the Badger game. It's frustrating. And then I turn on the Bucks, and I love your hat. And it's Thanks. like, it's like, why am I watching college sports when the, the level of play in the NBA is just light years ahead of it? And we always come back to the romantic notion of like, you know, it's the spirit of the game in college sports. It's student athletes and stuff like that. So I get it. But um it, it, it's it's been a bit of an internal conversation for me. It's like I have spent so much like fan energy on college sports over the years, and then you factor in you know the way that these student athletes are uh, are, are are treated and, and and not compensated. But I I know I'm rambling a little bit, but I do want to point this out. Um, I almost said that student athletes are exploited. But I just finished reading uh, I Came as a Shadow, the John Thompson autobiography. Incredible read. And I love what he gets into in terms of, you know, obviously he was a champion for you know, equal rights and he accomplished so much. But I do love his take on the fact that he graduated his players. He emphasized that they get their education because Yes, college athletes are not paid with a salary, but the value of getting that degree, the opportunity to get that degree cannot possibly be undervalued. So that was kind of a wake up moment for me because, I mean, it's, it's no mystery that the NCAA is just a ginormous money-making machine. But we can't discount the fact that these, a lot of these kids are given the opportunity to get a degree and an edge on life that they might not have had if it weren't for, if it weren't for athletics. Speaking of that, um, I guess, what's your kind of uh, view on, I know we're just keep, seems like we're talking forever, but anyways, uh, 
that the NCAA football video game has a chance to come back um, and the hurdles that kind of have to come come with that. Obviously, it's going to be a couple of years down the line until they release it, but what's kind of your thoughts on that kind of coming back? I hadn't heard about that. That's like EA Sports is coming back? Yeah, EA Sports with college football. So I mean, what's what's the uh, I mean, what's the model going to be like? Is are, I mean, student athletes still aren't going to be compensated? Are they still going to use their names and likenesses? I, th- I think they're just. This is why they're kind of releasing this in 2023 because they're trying to get to those hurdles. Obviously, some schools have signed on. Um, they have that like college license or whatever it's called, CLC or something. That um, they got like over a hundred schools that they're going to be able to use. Okay. Um, but yeah, they're, they're just hoping that it gets sorted out and then we'll, you know. I mean, there's a huge opportunity there. And I would love for this to be an opportunity for that revenue to come into universities for there to be a proper compensation to universities for the use of those likenesses. But then you need accountability. You need somebody to make sure that however many tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars that universities are getting for those likenesses, that the student body is benefiting, that those funds are going into athletic facilities, that they're going into accommodations for players, that they are going into facilities on campus. Because if all we're going to give students, and again, I shouldn't say all we're giving them, if we're going to compensate them in the form of an education, that revenue has to enhance and augment that education. If that's the case, I'm all for it. I have to confess, I haven't played a video game outside of the games that I play with my girls on my Wii in many years, but I played Madden probably more than I went to class during college. So I those games are dope. They're awesome. It would be great to have it back, but they need to come back w- with with the checks and balances so that we're not just lining, you know, universities' pockets. It, it just, it, it can't happen. You know, we're, this is 2021. Uh, accountability needs to be in place so that that money actually advances education. Um, You said Madden. Like, what's the craziest game of Madden you've ever had? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I don't know if there's one game, but I... Me and my neighbor from downstairs in college, we lived on Locust Street, a couple of blocks from campus. We play Madden all the time. And he convinced me to join a Madden league that was run through uh, the bar BBC on North Avenue. They actually got together 30 people to have a full-fledged league where you would travel to other people's houses because this was before online gaming. So you'd go to this stranger's house and play Madden against him in like week five and you'd report your results. And it was an awful idea. (laughs) That sounds awful, but it just seems like, man, that's so much time. That sounds so much fun. Yeah. I mean, before, before we did that, we had like five or six friends that we actually played out a whole season where we like created our own teams. That was neat. But as soon as we joined that BBC league and we were like going into neighborhoods, we'd never set foot in and, you know, you, you'd walk into a place and it just, it's just like, this is at Milwaukee. So it's like, are you like, 
oh, you got to go play uh, somebody on the third ward, or then all of a sudden you got to go and play somebody in the sketchiest part of Milwaukee. Absolutely. Yep. All, all of the above. And it was, <laughs> it was pretty wild. Um, and if I remember right, I think that we got through like week seven or eight and the league mysteriously shut down and nobody wanted to talk about why. So I don't, I don't, I don't know if, uh, if, if one of those games went awry because come on, we've played Madden with, with our closest friends and, and nearly attacked each other. Right. Mm. I had a game once my freshman year of college, I was playing some dude. I, I decided to play as the Saints because I didn't, and he was playing as the Vikings and we, it was like, no, it was like no defense in this whole, in this whole game. It's like, oh, I score, you score. I took like two touchdowns, two kickoffs back for touchdowns. It was, it got to overtime and it, the final score was, uh, I think I beat this guy like 90 to 84 in overtime. What, what year was this? Madden 11. Madden, oh, so you, you probably. Drew Brees versus Brett Favre. Yeah. And was it Tracy Porter making the interception and taking it to the house? I don't remember what, what the – there's an offensive score probably because it's just, there's no defense whatsoever. I, I'm a Saints fan. So um, that, that team, you know, 2009 obviously was very important to me. Uh, so I, I have to assume that there was some Lance Moore, Marcus Colston, uh, some, some ridiculous some – Devery, Some Devery Henderson. <laughs> Devery. Of course, I'm, I'm, always, I'm always the guy that runs the four verts play. No, just and go like. Just go. But I'm just like going to the whoever whoever's the this middle slant route in Madden. Oh yeah. Four verts play because that like always works. Just clears everybody out, and then you got the guy running the drag route. Yeah. But then there's like one of the recent Maddens. I was um I like followed some Madden um guy on YouTube, and I found this like one shotgun play where you could move some guys around. And I used that against a buddy of mine, and my buddy quit in the third quarter because he just could not stop this one play. It was just like me moving a couple of the routes, one of the routes, every single play to some some other spot to yeah. kind of take take advantage of that. And it was like, I know nothing about cover three or cover two or any of that crap. I'm like, I'm just taking a, a dude's advice off of YouTube, and I'm just going to just do this. And your buddy, did, it wasn't fun anymore. Yeah. That's awesome. I love Madden stories. Madden stories are the best. Yeah. For my, my team in college was the uh, Tennessee Titans. Um, McNair, Eddie George, Derek Mason. Um, so that's Keith, Madden 01 or 02? No, this would have been uh, 03. 03 was, would be the Marshall Falk cover. Yeah, yeah, but that was when it'd we be, really started. It'd be Eddie George. It's Eddie George, Dante Culpepper, Marshall Falk. Uh, 04 was Michael Vick. 05 was Ray Lewis. 06 was uh, McNabb. 07 is Sean Alexander. 08 is Vince Young. 09 is – who was 09? Favre. 10 wow. was Palomalu and Larry Fitzgerald. 11 was Drew Brees. 12 was Peyton Hillis. 13 was like Megatron. Uh, 15. Go, 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 go. <laughs> I know. Uh, was Golden Tate on there? I don't, I don't know. You're, you're out of my wheelhouse <laughs> now. Uh, 
The, you're right about Favre, though, because there was the perceived curse of him throwing the pick against the Saints in the NFC title game after he was on the cover. So that, yeah. that, that checks out. Um, but the Ray Lewis year, 2005, that was our heyday. That was, hit that stick. was when we played the most, Adam. The hit stick. The hit stick. It changed everything. The hit stick and the truck stick. Yeah. I just got a couple months ago, I got randomly bought a PS2 because I wanted to play ESPN 2K5 because that's like the best uh, NFL game. Nice. Nice. But uh, playing MLB the show right now, too. And I got like, I always try to get the Brewers undefeated, but I got like Kershaw, Cole, Woodruff, uh, I got Cody Bellinger for $300 million. Wow. I got Yelich on a $443 million. I missed the show when that game came out, you know, I remember playing that in like 2008 and it just had that real feeling. Who was on 08 cover was Ryan Howard. <laughs> you might be right. I don't, I don't remember. 07's just, David Wright. 08 was him. I just, I just remember how real it felt because like baseball was my sport. Um, apart from being apart from running, like baseball is my one true love. And it was just like, this feels so real. Like depending on the timing of the swing, the type of the pitch, it was like, this is getting freaky how realistic this is. The cool thing about it now, and I love it is um, you can, um, they have all these like home run calls in it. Nice. And it's like, you got all these, like you got, um, you got Euchre's in there, obviously, but my favorite one that I just got is just like the ex-girlfriend who's not coming back. That one's gone. Who who made that call? I don't know if it was some Japanese call or something. <laughs> That's great. That's <laughs> and they great. have that in the game, and then they got the boom goes the dynamite. Oh, that's in there. Awesome. Reggie Miller looking good. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Well. Okay. Let's just, I want to ask one more question before. Yeah, yeah, by all means. And I got to go um, make one for my kids. <laughs> um, obviously, you were covering prep sports in 2002 and um, so probably um, recently. What's the, what's been the biggest difference in, um, I guess, covering sports um, then till now? Well, I haven't covered a game in quite some time. And I guess that's the big change is that, you know, the gamer, we've found out that the gamer isn't as important as we thought it was. Um, I think that one of the interesting things is that I remember uh, this was in like 2011 when I got my first smartphone and I was texting Twitter to tweet because I didn't have the app yet. It was a matter of, oh no, I didn't, I didn't even have my smartphone yet. I still had my, my old phone. And I would yeah, at least you were at least you ended up getting a smartphone then because I didn't get a smartphone until like my last semester of college. Okay. And I like okay, now it's like you can't really get me off the thing, but it's like <laughs> um yeah we bring like so, a laptop to games just or to what UW Whitewater games to be able to just be on my laptop and tweet. Yeah. But so around like 2011, before the smartphone, like I had like the old flip phone and you would, you would text to a number and then it would tweet. So I would be at games and I'd be, you know, texting. So I'd be like live tweeting the game. And it became evident really fast that a lot of those athletes were on Twitter. And it also became really evident that if I did that enough, 
I didn't necessarily need to like write everything down in my notebook. All of a sudden I'd get back to the office and I'd be like looking at my tweets for notes from the game. And um, that, that really, that, that changed things in that, you know, this, this seems obvious, but like the immediacy of information right now is absolutely king. Um, so not then you, having- then you add in like schools, I don't know. I don't think high schools probably maybe high schools will gravitate to this at some point, but obviously colleges have live stats. Yeah. But I, you know, I haven't covered a gamer in eight years, but even then it was, it was like, okay, the immediacy of information is, is king now. By the time I file my gamer and people read it in the paper tomorrow, it's, it's, it's old news. Um, so I don't know though. I, I still like pick, I still like picking up a story and reading the entire thing, but I also like having a newspaper in my hands. I'm an old soul, but um, but yeah, not having written a gamer in eight years, uh, I, I I don't I don't really know uh, I don't really know the most significant changes lately. I guess I'm sheltered now. Okay, um, I'm just gonna let let you end it with just plug your plug what your podcast is called and in uh, that just. To end this well we've had such a great conversation i'm sure that everybody's stuck around my god we've been talking for over an hour this has been fun um every everything about the show is forty thousand steps it's the name of the uh memoir that i wrote after the after i ran the marathon the day after i got out of treatment so if you go on youtube spotify google podcasts just type in forty thousand steps and you'll find your way to my show we do it every other Tuesday night. We live stream it on my Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash 40,000 steps. Anything and everything you need to know about it, you can find on my website, 40,000steps.wordpress.com. All right, cool. Uh, Chris, um, nice meeting you. First, first sure. off, um, thanks for joining me. And um, thanks, everybody, for listening to listening and watching to podcast on D-Shot. Awesome, man. Take care of yourself, all right? Yep. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Podcasts on D-Shot. Feel free to give any of the other episodes a listen, as a lot of them have some great, exciting content, as well as some great interviews. Don't forget to give my Facebook page a like, Daniel Shotler Journalist, as well as give me a follow on Twitter or Instagram at dshot1992. Don't forget to subscribe if you're on Google Podcasts or Spotify or Apple Podcasts, wherever you can find this. And hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for listening and have a good day.